Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now entered the house of mystery with your host. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is here. Present. Yeah. How are you doing, Al? I'm doing good. <laughs> so you haven't been driving into any Apple stores lately, have you? No, no, no. no. You know, stay away from that. That's terrible. No, that's Boston. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody did. Yeah. I thought it was you Crazy. for a minute. Yeah. No, no. No. No, I'm not. I'm nowhere near that area. No, they they don't let you in that area. <laughs> they don't let me there. No, they don't let me in. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good thing. Got to stay away from that. <laughs> and you're not wearing white when you go out, are you? It's after Labor no. Day. Okay. No. Good. No, I looked that up, and it seems like you know it was to uh, differentiate between the upper and uh, lower classes. Oh, wearing white after Labor Day. Yeah. I, I guess I guess it was I guess it was like more of the working classes. Yeah. Oh. According according to what I read on on you know, Google or Wiki or whatever it was. Oh, well, that's probably, it's probably true. If it's on the yeah. internet, it's yeah. got to be true. It's all true. It's all, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, today we have a guest <laughs> from Norway and she's got a new book out called All the Blood We Share. Sounds pretty scary. Um, so <laughs> let's welcome Kamala Bruce. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Kamala. Now, you like writing scary stories, or, or what's? it looks like you've written a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do like to explore the darker silo things, yes. Wow. What, what happened in your life to make you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think some of us are just wired that way, that we think we can learn a lot or or find new things in the dark things that a lot of other people 
don't necessarily want to look at or touch. Yeah, and there's a lot of that out there. What so do you um do you take kind of the um common let's say uh the common myths and beliefs and dark dark literature out there and dark fairy tales and stuff do you take the common themed ideas and run with them or do you actually make changes to them i do make changes to them and i think especially when you think of myths myths and fairy tales um they do tend to change over time and have always done so because society changes and people changes and we need something new from our stories where where do fairy tales come from in a sense where do the dark fairy tales like if it if it comes from society it comes from folk um where do, do people just make them up like and is it to like scare kids or into doing something good or bad like why where do they come from i think it- Part of it is that they are cautionary tales, you know, to make kids stay away from water or what, whatever. Uh, but I also think there's uh, an aspect of it, which is that people really like to listen to or make up dark stories um, because uh, they give a thrill. And especially in a time where we didn't have TVs or Internet or uh, that much entertainment, I think that... Uh, uh, listening to these stories around the fireplace sort of feel that need for excitement. It seems to tie in, too, with a lot of things like, you know, occult and witchcraft and things like that. There seems to always be a crossover with that. In my work, you mean? Or in fairy tales in general? Well, just in, well, in, just in general. Yeah, I think so. And Yeah, and I think that... Uh, that people have always been fascinated with powers that you cannot see, things that are hidden and and not apparent to the naked eye. So I think there's a fascination there. And, of course, back in the days, they, they, there was also an aspect of caution there as well, because they did believe that these things were real, very real at times. So I think it was like sometimes you have fairy tales about wolves or or bears or other things that can kill you. And I think uh, stories about witches in some ways fill that same function. So you were to sort of know the nature of the beast if you met it, you knew what it was from the stories, including the witches. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So let's talk about uh, this new book you've got, All the Blood We Share. Um, tell us a little bit about the premise. Like, what what is the book about? Yeah, all the blood we share is actually based on a true story, uh, something that happened in Kansas in the 1870s, early 1870s, and it's about a family of four who came there to settle, and no one really knew where they came from or what their background was, besides the fact that they came from Germany originally. So. Only one of them spoke proper English. The rest spoke mostly German. And uh, they settled down in a very small house or more like a shack in the prairie where they operated a roadside inn. But it was not an inn like you think of an inn today. It was more like you could pay to get a meal and sleep on the floor, sometimes outside. Um, So it was very, very simple, but also pretty common back then. And... uh, after they had been there for a while, people started noticing that people, travelers, disappeared off the street, of the road. And uh, 
Um, they also found some bodies in the river and out on the prairie left there. And uh, slowly but surely, it became apparent that this family, the Bender family, had something to do with these disappearances. When you write a story like this, how do you get into the minds of the characters, of the, of your, of the people that are involved? Um, because this is quite a while ago, and they're, they're not alive anymore, obviously. Um, so how do you develop a story around real people like that? Uh, first, you have to look at what you do know about them, which in this case isn't really a lot because they were there for only about two and a half years. And uh, as I said, no one knew their background for sure. They didn't really even know how the family was uh, put together. Was it a mother and a father and two children or were they two couples or were they, you know, they didn't really know. There were a lot of theories going around. Um, but you have to look at what you do know and what people said. And of course, there's a lot of rumors and lies in the wake of something dramatic like what happened with the vendors. Um, and then you have to sort of try to figure out or, or see if you can see the shape of someone in that mix. And uh, also look at what, where the story is going, what is happening, what is going to happen and try to create or craft a, a character from that. Yeah, it's interesting. What, so what was your, you, you kind of come to the conclusion of what when you look at this family? What do you, do you think that they were really um, practicing witchcraft, let's say, or bad people? Or do you think it was just all fear out of what people didn't understand? It's a little bit hard to say. I don't think they practiced witchcraft in the way that people said uh, because that was, uh, it was actually one of the first things that uh, drew me to the story because it reminded me so much of European witch trials and transcripts from European witch trials because it was, you had all these elements that you usually don't come across anymore when you talk about witchcraft, like shape shifting into cats and stealing milk from your neighbor through rags and, and things like that, which sounds pretty much like it comes from the 16th century instead of the 19th century. And so I don't think they practiced witchcraft in that sense, but I do think because the daughter in the family tried to make it as medium and a psychic, I think that they may have peddled some herbal remedies out the door and sort of, uh, that's an old trick, you know, if you don't have much, you you claim that you have a special power or a special recipe so that you can make a little extra just by sort of feeding that rumor. And I think they may have done that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to do a lot of research into uh, the occult and witchcraft to to uh, kind of go into what they were supposedly doing back then? Yeah, there were like two strains there because the rumors that did exist, um, they actually uh, corresponded pretty well with written sources on uh, on witchcraft beliefs and believe in the believe in the occult among german settlers so that it's clear that some of these old european thoughts and ideas came over with them and that's sort of where i found this old old school stuff but this was also in the beginning of the spiritualism craze so that was sort of an, another 
strain to follow. And uh, Kate, the daughter in the house, she tried to be a part of that. So I did look into uh, spiritualism as a religion and as a practice because obviously they were connected to that. And uh, I also figured out that sometimes, uh, because back in the day it was said that only the only witches could speak to the dead. So for these people who believe that, that uh, the mediums that, are, that started having their heyday in the 19th century, uh, they had to be witches in order to speak to the dead. So there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of mix-ups there and, and some confusion and a lot of superstition. So it was very fascinating to follow the different strains of occult beliefs. So what, do you, what did they actually end up doing to the family? Were they, were they prosecuted? For the for the crimes? No, they were not. They um, when they figured out that uh, the people of Cherry Whale uh, were onto them, they uh, packed up and left. And uh, people found their carriage, um, the wagon. They had a, this rickety old wagon, and they found that and uh, the family dog and a lot of belongings, but they did not find the family. So there was a huge manhunt. And the, the press was following it closely, and there was a lot of reported sightings of the Bender families, either family either together or one and one or two of them or one. And there were even a couple of false arrests because people thought they had found some of the Benders, and it turned out not to be. So, um, but in the end, they didn't find them, so no one knows what happens to them. Wow. That's uh, you know it's, it's interesting. What what makes you gravitate to a story like this? I think that in my first novel based on true crime, uh, in the Garden of Spite, uh, which was about a Norwegian immigrant, so that's why it felt close to me. Um, there was this lone killer who did everything by herself. She set up house. She invited men in, and she she killed them in the, on a huge scale. But the Benders, they, they worked together. It was like a group. So I think it was the, the idea of how does something like this happen within a family? How do they, they interact with each other? And how do they, do the family dynamics change when they start a, a life of crime together? What do they say to each other over dinner? I think that was what, what fascinated me most in the beginning. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering how you, create your dialogue especially for characters who are you know historical and stuff are you pulling from anything from the historical record are you pulling from news reports or anything like that from even other people who lived at that time or is it um more imagination and um just going down the that road to 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 create dialogue Uh, i know some authors or historical fiction, they really try to make the language as authentic as possible. But my experience is that for a lot of contemporary readers, that becomes a little too difficult to understand, you know. So I'm trying to uh, walk a middle ground there. So it's supposed to be accessible, but also have that old-fashioned flair. But of course, if I find a direct quote from a character, I try to use it because for the authenticity. How, how reliable is the information when you get it? Like, Because when you, if you go back to old newspaper articles and stuff, I would think that a lot of the um, 
media would look at this family as something evil, probably. That would be kind of their perception. So they're, they're, they would probably report it that way. Did you find that that was true, or were they pretty neutral? They were not neutral. <laughs> they were not neutral. <laughs> All the press was furious that uh, the police wasn't able to make an arrest. Um, and, of course, uh, they did some pretty bad things. So I do understand that. Uh, that it was hard to remain neutral. Um, but no, I think that everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. And of course, after something like this happens, there's a lot of rumors that arise. And also, certainly everyone has been at the Bender Inn and eaten and almost gotten killed, but gotten out of there through luck or their own wit. Uh, so you have to sort of sort the stories. What, what is, likely to be true and what not likely to be true but yeah i ate there and i got <laughs> sick <laughs> yeah yeah but well, something that's not true i can still use it if it suits my story so that's uh, that's the upside to not writing completely realistic yeah well what did what did they actually get accused of doing or what did the townspeople think that the Bender family had done? How many people had they killed? Or what What was it that they, they had done to people? Um, they had, when they had guests at the inn that they thought had money on them, because a lot of people were traveling with large amounts of money at that time to buy land or things like that. Uh, they would uh, feed them and uh, make them feel at home. And then... According to legend, one of the benders would come up behind a curtain which they had, which separated their, their private quarter from the front of the inn. Uh, there was a canvas curtain. And the, the person, behind the, person behind the curtain with, would strike with a hammer in the back of the head of the, pe- the person who sat there eating his dinner. And when he got sick from the blow, they would tip him back into a, a shallow cellar that they had under the house. And then they would cut their throat. And they did that several times. So in addition to the, the body that was found in the river and the two bodies that were found in the prairie, they found about 10 or 11 people out in behind the Bender Inn. So they were at it for quite some time. Now, the people that they found in the back of the Bender Inn, were they, how, were they, how were they killed? They were killed with first a hammer blow to the head, and then they were, the throats were cut. And the police didn't find any evidence or couldn't charge them with anything, eh? Well, they ran away, so they couldn't. But it was clear that it was, <laughs> it was their, their doing, yes. Were there any surprises that you found when you were doing the research on this story? I think the biggest surprise, there were some of them. Um, I was constantly surprised. But what surprised me the most was that it was them, because the people of Cherry Whale, they were worried that people disappeared off the road, and they were um, suspicious. But they never sort of um, figured out that it was the benders, and that's very curious to me. When you finish writing this book and, and, and you get it out and stuff, do you, does, it, does it change your attitude toward people, people you meet on the street or people that your neighbors? 
I do think that maybe you get a little bit suspicious, but then again, it's very rare that people you meet are serial killers. That's the ultimate bad luck. Uh, but I also think that one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to these stories about the serial killers is because uh, we think of them as monsters, which they are. They're definitely monsters. But I'm also curious about where is the human in the monster? Where where does the line go? Where does the person end and the monster begin? And that's sort of what what draws me to them. Because I'm curious. Because they're so different from us. Yeah. Do you ever wonder why a serial killer does stuff like that? And 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 in this particular case, if if it's all true, um, you have a family of four or four people that are doing it all as one unit. So why four people would get together and and serial kill per se? Um, do you ever wonder how? And and yeah, because I always wonder how would that conversation come up? Yeah, I think that. It, it, the rumor goes that they already had a shady past, that one of them had killed someone in Pennsylvania. And I think that makes sense, that things like these, they are like um, accelerating. It's maybe start small or with just one thing or two things. And, and then you sort of, I think it's the same thing as in a, a, a cult, you know, that you your boundaries are being pushed all the time because other people talk you into it. And as you like, um, maybe seduce each other into thinking this is not so bad if you look at it from this or that angle. So I think that when there are several killers who work together, they are able to um, coax each other into it in a way. I think they start small and then it just snowballs. Yeah, that must have been interesting dinner talk around the the Bender family. <laughs> yeah, at the dinner table, you know, like. <laughs> um, so, so what do you think um, when you when you do something like this? Does this make you want to write another book in the same sort of um, gen- genre? Yeah, this is actually my second one <laughs> based on true crime. I did one before uh, on Belganes, a female serial killer who originally came from Norway, from the same part of Norway as I am from. So she felt sort of relatable to me, in a sense, to a certain point, yeah. Uh, and it is slightly addictive because you get this mixture mixture of thriller and uh, uh, true crime and historical fiction, uh, which I think it's really fun to work with. Well, I'm wondering, you know, you... Uh... You know, when you're doing these historical uh, crime fiction type novels, how much literary license do you need to take um, to dramatize the story? Or are you able to kind of stay in the, uh, you know, within that true arc of of the story that happened in real life? So I had to take a lot of creativity. (laughs) But uh, in my first book, uh, there were a a lot more facts known. So I could sort of piece together what I had but then too you had to you know even if you know the facts you don't know what they thought or how they felt or or um, who they were when no one was looking so that's things you have to make up and especially in terms of motive because it's not always clear yes it's the money but is it just the money would you do something so horrible just for money and then you have to sort of look into them and try to come up with with reasons that aren't readily apparent 
Yeah, it's it's, it's strange, you know. Um, how did you get into writing, period? Where did it start for you? Writing in general or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like writing books. I think I've always written, but um, I was a late bloomer because <laughs> I didn't get serious before I was in my 30s. Um, and also because um, you know, I live in Norway and I've always been drawn to, as we said, sort of dark books and I also write speculative fiction you know dark fantasy and horror and uh, it's not really a market for that in Norway so it has been quite a journey because I was had to look outside of my own country to find my markets um, but um, I think writing and expressing myself in that way has always been something I have done and something i probably always will do so it's really nice to uh, finally be at a point where i can share my stories with readers yeah and america is always a good market to 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 sell murder (laughs) (laughs) there's there's, there's always some people interested in their big big market you know um so where where to next what's coming up next after this book Uh, Right now I have been focusing a little bit on my speculative fiction, so I've been working on a horror novel. So, um, But I do have an outline for a new historical murder book, which I hope to be able to start writing really soon. Um, But since it's not, uh, nothing is decided yet, as they say, I I don't know if I can share anything more than that, (laughs) besides the fact that there's more in the room. There's more coming. Um, now, do you do social media? Do you have a website? Uh, do you uh, do interact with readers? And if so, what is the website and what social media platforms are you on? Um, my website is camillabruce.com. And uh, I'm mostly on Instagram. And that's camillabruce underscore writing. But you can go there from my website as well. I'm also on Twitter, but not as much as Instagram. Yeah, a lot of people don't seem to be on Twitter as much these days. Yeah. Uh, Things are going on there, you know. Um, But certainly interesting. So if someone someone had never um, heard of you before, what book would you tell them to pick up to pick to kind of get your your type of writing? Um, That depends on what what am I writing or interested in? As I said, I, I write in two different genres, and I know that not everyone who likes my historical books likes my speculative work and vice versa. Uh, so if you want to write something more fantastical, I think I would have started with my debut, You Let Me In, which is a dark fairy tale. And uh, if you're more into historical fiction, I think that even though there's a lot of me in all the blood we share. I also think that you will get a better idea of who I am as a writer in in The Garden of Spite, which was my first true crime-based novel. Well, do you put a lot of your own character in in true crime books, more so than this fiction, speculative fiction? No, I think it's about the same, but different versions of different sides, I think. And there are different, very different books, and uh, I use very different parts of me when I write them. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, it's been a pleasure um, having you on the show, and um, 
hopefully everything goes well for you. Um, the book, of course, we were talking about is All the Blood We Share, and our guest is the author, Kamala Bruce. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Kamala. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.